0: Hi, this is Steve Hargadon and welcome
1: to the Future of Education. It's Tuesday, May 11th, 2010. We're sure glad to have you here tonight. Uh, Tonight uh, we're talking with Leonard Wax on the Web 2.0 Educational Revolution. Are we there yet? And Leonard, we have a nice crowd for you. I'm excited.
2: Yep, wonderful.
1: So welcome. If this is your first time, I'll let you know that the Future of Education is sponsored by Learn Central. You hear that from me every week, but I uh, run a um, social network for educators at Illuminate called Learn Central. It is free, and it has Illuminate baked in. We hope you'll come and play around. You can even host your own webinars for free. Coming up on the Future of Education this week, on Thursday, we talked to the Think Global Schools team. Uh, this is the new school. If you haven't been to Think Global Schools website, it's fascinating what they're they're going to be doing. Next week, Charles Fidel talks about school architecture. Michael Furtick, one of the founders of Taking IT Global, or Taking It Global, is going to be on the show. Uh, a week after that, Kathy Davidson. And lots more fun coming up. I um, wonder if there's anything new on that list. Oh, yeah, Paul Peterson, whose new book, Saving Schools, is out, uh, signed up to, to be with us on September 28th. If you've missed a show, we hope you'll listen to the recordings. The John Taylor Gatto recording has not processed yet. I had some kind of a problem with it, but it is coming. We're told it is not lost and it will be there, so later this week we hope. Uh, Seth Godin is up, Anya Kamenetz, uh, lots of other fun sessions. Hope you'll listen to those. Students 2.0 at httpstudents20.com is up and running. And uh, we have student dialogue going on there. The idea is to create a place for students to pursue educational interests with each other and with educators outside of their traditional environment. It's an experiment, but we hope you'll come and play around there. EduBloggerCon, the Saturday before the ISTE conference in Denver on June 26th, all day, free. It's a uh, great event, Uh, an unconference for those interested in social media and education. And uh, it's always a lot of fun. I think we're in our fourth year now, so edubloggercon.com. Also that same day, brand new Open Source Con, uh, an all-day conference on open source software in K-12 education. Same venue, the Colorado Convention Center there in Denver, the big blue bear. And just announced our global education conference. If you go to my blog at stevehargadon.com, we've put up a survey there that you can fill out if you're interested in this. A five-day, multiple times on multiple language, multiple track, virtual free conference in November on global education. Um, very excited about this. Should be a lot of fun. Lucy Gray is helping. Lucy Gray and I are organizing that. We've got a great team of uh, organizations helping to co-sponsor the event. So. Please pay attention to that if you are interested in global education and we will hope to meet your interests. If this is your first time, Illuminate is a participative environment. You can, you'll notice that you're able to put things in the chat. I'm going to recommend that you go up to View Layouts and switch to the Wide Layout. It's much easier to see the chat if you're looking at it through the Wide Layout. So View Layout, Wide Layout. and That chat won't fly by so quickly. At the bottom of your participant window, you can clap. You can do a smiley face, a confused look, or a thumbs down. You can also uh, raise your hand. We'll go to Q&A. And if you would like to ask a question using the microphone, look for that hand with the green up arrow. And that's how you would raise your hand. If you think that you would like to ask a question with the mic later, do go up to Tools, Audio, run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure your microphone is configured correctly. You're welcome to chat as much as you like in the chat area. Do be aware that uh, even though it looks like you can send a private message, Leonard and I see all private messages because we're the moderators. And Leonard can see the chat right now. Okay, this is your chance to do your first form of participation. Look for the wand with the red star at the end. It's just to the left of the map. Click on the map and let us know where you're listening from. You can also shout out in the chat as some have done already. I see Portugal Trenton, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New Orleans, Maine, Adelaide, Australia, Brooklyn, Asheville, North
0: Carolina, Denver, Colorado. It's a fun. What time is it in Australia right now? In the morning. Well, we're sure glad to have you here wherever you're listening from or if you're listening to the recording.
1: So, Lena, this is a lot of fun for me because you've been a pretty avid uh, listener participant in the show and, and now get a chance to talk about the things that you're working on. How many of the Future of Education sessions do you think you've attended?
2: Well, I've probably gone to maybe 30, 40, That's <laughs> a
1: lot. <laughs> you're making my day. I'm well, really see, glad. Well, are
2: you're, you're my hero, you're, uh, you're a national treasure. This is the best thing since they, no, since, I was going to say since they invented television, but what I mean is, since I unplugged the television. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll pay you your 20 bucks later, yeah. thanks, for the, thanks for the plug. Well I sure think this has been a lot of fun, and it is, it's, um, it's really nice to hear that you have felt like there's been value to this series. Um, and obviously I've been a believer that something very big is happening, and that it's really important for us to talk about. Can you give us a little bit of background about yourself and sort of what's brought you to this moment?
2: Well, Steve, the, uh, the big background is I started out as a philosopher. I uh, studied philosophy at Wisconsin, and I taught philosophy at Purdue and Stanford. And uh, my doctoral dissertation was about kind of industrial models of education, the factory school. And by that time, in the mid-1960s, people were already very upset about the factory school. It didn't seem to be doing anybody very much good. And there were all kinds of alternatives being proposed. At that time, you will remember Summerhill was big. And uh, free schools were starting to develop in the United States. There was one in California that I visited a good deal. And so there was this uh, dialectic between the factory model, the kind of rationalist model of trying to determine standards and objectives and measure them and put everybody through kind of a standard curriculum and get them tested with standardized tests, which you know people didn't like and didn't seem to be working very well, seemed to be extremely limited and narrowing, and then all kinds of uh, alternatives which couldn't get a foothold. So at that time I think that uh, I decided to study education more specifically, and in 1971 I joined the education faculty at Temple. And uh, really, since the mid-60s, I've been trying to understand, on the one hand, the kind of technical industrial models of schooling, and trying to look at their alternatives. Now, what's what's obvious is that in the last 40 years or 45 years or so since I've been looking at this. Uh, many new things have happened, and in particular, the internet has just opened up such a huge world. And so now I'm just trying to think about what the implications of all that are. I mean, if you think back, there was a time when there were no books, and if you went to school, you went to school because like a teacher had a book, so the teacher could read the book, and that was what a lecturer was. A lecturer was a person who read something. And then we had, you know, mass production of books, and people could go to schools, and we'd, everyone would have a textbook. But most people had nothing except a textbook in their school. And so, you know, maybe there was a school library downstairs, but, and the teacher had a small curriculum. But you were kind of bound by the uh, knowledge that was in that curriculum and in that textbook as far as what could happen in a classroom was concerned. Class was cut off from... The outside world, and there was nothing coming in and nothing going out, and so there you were, kind of enclosed. And then you have uh, the internet, and now the entire world is right there in the classroom, and anything can come in and anything can go out. So that's uh, that's what I'm looking at.
1: It seems like the internet's such a fundamental shift that I've wondered how how you've looked at your you have a model for how change takes place in education. And does the internet potentially alter that model?
2: Well, I'm, I'm not sure it does I, I think that the, the main thing is that the internet plays into the model if you want to stick up a graph there I think uh, if, if you look at at the uh, sh- the slides that I sent you somewhere in the in the Leonard your audio got hard to hear from that. Oh,
0: okay
2: so somewhere in the uh, slides that i sent you there is a uh, slide about the revolutionary model uh, so i can tell you where it is roughly it's
1: I'll pull it's, it up
2: uh, around page 7 okay okay and so if you if you can get that, i don't know if you can get that up uh, but i can i can talk about it the, the thing is the 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 internet stabilizes the situation of schools. And it does it in a lot of ways. It First, it makes it kind of ridiculous to the, the classroom around just tiny little knowledge when they're just everything that's available can come right. And so people will want to use it. And as they start to use it, for example, Classroom 2.02 start to try to use all of the blogs and wikis and curriculum and projects and collaboration like will destabilize the classroom process because, you know, they'll be getting into something interesting and then, no, we have to go back to that lesson, back to the four parts of the frog or the state capitals of the United States or something because there's going to be on some some exam. So there is going to be a big tension that is introduced between the uh, ordinary day-to-day process of the classroom and what is possible with the Internet. And then teachers will start and and other people will start to try to make alternatives uh, of various sorts where they will try to be using the web in the classroom and people will be having learning activities outside the classroom using uh, web tools so that the whole classroom will be just surrounded by all kinds of rich learning experiences that are so different from what's going on in this school. And that's, I think, the kind of the first driver of big change.
1: So, Leonard, I can hear you okay, but it's not terrific, and we're getting a couple of comments that the sound is breaking up. Would you try and raise the volume of your microphone just a bit?
2: how do I do that? Let's see.
1: Well, you sound better to me already, maybe just by getting closer to the okay, mic.
2: Okay, let me stay close to the mic like
1: this. There you go. And also down in the audio area, you'll see a little slider that lets you move up your audio volume, your microphone volume.
2: Okay, oh good. Yes, I can see that.
1: You sound uh, very clear to me now. I hope the chat is, yeah, the chat is saying you sound much better.
2: Okay. So is why that don't you better? take
1: Yeah, that sounds great. So why don't you kind of take us through this change process. And I mean, the first thing that came to mind for me were things like the United Breaks Guitars video, where all of the sudden, sort of traditional ways of thinking about institutional change have been upended because of the ability for the audience now to mobilize. And I think of, you know, the Classroom 2.0 network or EduBloggerCon or EduCon or conferences where educators are now creating their own conferences around what they want to talk about. So how does the, go ahead and go through this process and sort of describe how you think the, the Internet plays into it. Okay, sure.
2: Well, first of all, we have uh, an institutional misalignment. We have schools that don't permit any of what's going on outside of the school. To get to get in and interact with what's going on inside the school, I, I mean, uh, people no longer work without the internet. They no longer play without the internet. They uh, they get information. They get jobs. They even do their jobs often over the internet. And the school is just completely out of alignment with that. And so you have these uh, uh, constant anomalies. The school is, you know, as everybody knows, preparing people for uh, kind of non-existent jobs when all the jobs basically make use of the Internet, and the Internet's a learning tool. So then you start getting protests and attempts at reducing these anomalies and ad hoc alternatives, like the ones you've mentioned. TASM 2.0 is, is an organized movement of ad hoc alternatives. Everybody's doing everything they can think of using the Internet in their classes. What we don't have yet, I think, is a really good synthetic vision, something like Horace Mann's vision of the common school, or Charles Elliott, the, the president of Harvard's vision of the high school at the end of the 19th century. We don't have a clear idea of how all of these pieces can can fit together into a new constellation, a new grammar. And that's, I think, the next step that we're waiting for. I uh, think once we have that, what's happened in the past, at least, is that responsible leadership has then come forward. Horace Mann was not the leader of the common school movement, Steve, a guy named Carter was the real leader of the common school movement, but when it looked like the common schools were going to replace the kind of shaggy district schools that were kind of half-functioning all over Massachusetts, they gave the job to Horace Mann because he was the president of the Massachusetts State Senate. So it was a sign that Now officials are going to take this over. When Horace Mann started the common school movement, uh, he really hadn't anticipated all of the uh, problems that it would run into. For example, the Catholics essentially wouldn't play along and they started their own schools. The older school teachers wouldn't play along and they tried to resist the new developments in the common school completely. And so a lot of backing and filling and renegotiating had to take place, but eventually the thing was ready for uh, a, a kind of negotiation, like we have these blue ribbon committees, and then you get new legislation, and then you start getting new institutions that are like the, the, uh, the, the new model. So where we are now, it seems to me, is that we've got tremendous amount of ad hoc alternatives, proposals, experiments around the core of the schools. But we don't yet have two things that are absolutely necessary to move forward. One is a clear synthetic vision of what the successor institutions going to look like. I mean all the particles in the world don't make a new a new institution. You need a pattern that that connects them the way all the pieces of the current school system are connected into a clear pattern. Once we have that, then we can have. A secretary of education, for example, like like uh, Bell when he was uh, Reagan's secretary of education, was uh, led the move toward uh, uh, a nation at risk, and what we we're not ready for that yet. I don't think that's why I, I call that Are we there yet? Because we're not yet aligned enough on a clear vision of where we're going for a big shot to kind of be appointed to come forth out of the kind of powerful structures of society to lead us to the next stage.
1: So Leonard, we're getting a little bit of audio breakup again. I don't know if it's because the mic has moved a little.
2: No, it may be as I talk, I just find myself moving away.
1: (laughs) I think that's true because you've come back clearly again. Okay,
0: good.
1: So So this is fascinating to me because what I love about this model is the recognition of the need to go from step to step. Mm-hmm. In the same way that a product, uh, uh, that you often hear that it's really not the idea of a new product, it's the implementation, because right. you have to, each step has to actually have an audience to go to that next step. But what's intriguing to me about it is, I don't think that you could have described Wikipedia in this way. And so I still have this little curiosity, curious voice in my head saying, do we still need the emergence of responsible leadership for change in this world?
2: Well, you know, Wikipedia is an interesting case, well, or Linux. I mean, they're interesting, but nobody sends their kids to Wikipedia in the morning when they go off to work. You have a, a – a, you know, the encyclopedia is a very important structure, obviously. Now, Wikipedia has pretty well preempted that space, just as Linux has moved in in a very, very powerful way in the – uh, software space, but schools I think are different in that they are uh, structures that are created by legislation, they are uh, uh, tied with very, very powerful forces like the publishing industry and the like, and they provide for many, many opportunities for parents and a community that would have to be replaced by something at least somewhat like them. I mean, even if Dan Pink is right, and many, many more of us are going to be free from working at a nine-to-five job, a very large number of parents are going to need a place, a safe place, to send their kids in the morning. So that... They can't can't bail out. I mean, even if there was a wonderful cyber school at home that they loved, they can't leave their kids at home. They need to be able to put them into some kind of a safe place. And the, 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 uh, the, it doesn't seem to me that we're quite at the point yet where that's going to exist. Now, you know, I think we're on the verge of that in some ways. Idaho has just started a digital learning academy. I guess you know about this, Steve, right?
1: The um, Idaho, the it, Idaho. It, this isn't the David Wiley, but is this a different one? Yeah.
2: David Wiley's is in Utah. Uh, this is a fundamentally different idea. David Wiley's school is a high school. It's a high school just like uh, the high school my own son graduated from, uh, Pennsylvania uh, Cyber School, PA Cyber, Uh, David Wiley's school, you know, you register, you go there, there are teachers, you're in a virtual learning environment just like Illuminate, and you collect uh, credits and you get a diploma. In the Idaho version, which I think is just absolutely revolutionary, it's not a school, it's a utility for and every high school is connected to it in Idaho now, and they are pumping cyber classes into every single high school in the state, which means that every school has, just like out of, out of nowhere, become a blended school. That is, kids can take a cyber class or a face-to-face class. When they're taking their cyber class, they don't have to be in school to take it. So that every school is a blended school and that happened overnight and happened because of a little bit of leadership in Idaho, Uh, but it's still a factory school in many ways. Still state standards, uh, a standardized test, so that everything is restricted by the confines of predetermined learning taking place in a, in a set environment where you have uh, a predetermined content and a predetermined exam.
1: So we're getting the same audio piece again. Yes. And if it's just the, if it's just a matter of, do you have a headset on? Yes, I do. Okay. So just just keep uh, making sure that the mic is close to your mouth, if you wouldn't mind. But I can still hear Good. you. I, it just okay. out a little. So th- here's what I hear you saying, and, and correct me if I'm mistaken. So web 2.0 and the technologies of the internet have r- radically altered our sense of learning and the potential for learning and where it takes pl- place. Absolutely. But change doesn't happen overnight and it r- and it depends on going from one logical state to the next logical state where it can be adopted. And in and what you're arguing and I think is really compelling And what I I think I hear you arguing is that the next logical state for adoption that brings us closer to change schools but actually addresses some of the very practical concerns are blended school models.
2: Absolutely, Steve. Because once you have blended school models, you have a couple of things that are really First of all, you have uh, Hey, Leonard.
1: uh, I'm going to interrupt you because the audio got bad again. So I'm wondering, do you have a telephone near you?
2: Uh, yes, I do.
1: What if we had you dial in on the call-in line?
2: Okay. Um, let, let me tell
1: on. you. Let me tell you how to do that when you're ready. Let's tell that.
2: Steve, can, am I still, am I still here?
1: I can hear you. Uh, I'll, I'm going to look for the chat to see if people feel like it's, it's uh, audible to them.
2: I ask this, is, is, tell me how to get this, uh, let me, let me do this, let me just goose this way up. Does that help?
1: does seem to be helping. We'll give it one more shot.
2: Okay. Give it one more shot and then I'll call in.
1: Okay, good. You're nice to be patient. Okay, no problem. Okay, so keep going.
2: Uh, Yes, what the blended school offers is, is, first of all, a huge amount of choice. That is, instead of one social studies class for the ninth grade, you have 20 social studies classes. You can have history of the 60's. You can have history of France. You can have a history of wherever the students are coming from. You can have any kind of cultural thing. Because even if you have only a few uh, students, you can put together a, a a courseware for that. And even if it means bringing students from many schools together, that's uh, quite possible. I mean, there are schools that don't have a good physics class. But, you know, even if a school can only handle three or four kids in a physics class, uh, an online physics class, you know, synchronous physics class can handle 25 or 30, so they can pool students and give huge amounts of choice. Secondly, that breaks down the whole notion that school is something clear and simple, you know, biology, chemistry, physics, uh, American history, uh, world history, civics. Uh, It begins, school becomes a rich set of possibilities. And thirdly, because students are taking classes both when they're in school and at home, the school uh, boundary becomes porous. Kids are coming in when they need to go to a face-to-face class or they're coming because the, the computer lab is open and they can essentially be in a cyber school even if their parents are working. You know, I think that was the intention in Idaho. They said, geez, the cyber schools are great. People love them. But kids whose parents aren't home can't go to a cyber school. So what we'll do is we'll be able to set up essentially a home school in the school. Kids can go there, take their classes there, and when mom and dad come home, they can go home.
1: So, um, yeah, I've I've had the same sort of uh, experience with looking at Pennsylvania Cyber Charter and appreciating how it it solves uh, problems on several levels including the funding issue but let's let's have you switch to the telephone because enough people have said that they were okay hard let's hear uh, so let me tell you what to do give me uh, tell you what you do you
2: give me a I'm, give me a phone number
1: I'm going uh, to give you put it, it in, in the, the chat I'm going to give you even easier directions okay so you're going to turn your microphone off
2: okay hold on
1: And then down in the uh, microphone uh, audio area, where the sliders are, you'll see a small handset icon. It's just to the right of teleconference available. It's not the full telephone picture at the bottom of the screen, but it's just a little handset. And you click on that, and it gives you a call in telephone number. And go ahead and call in. And and while Leonard is calling in, you can keep chatting. I'm going to close down the application share. And um, if anybody wants to say anything or grab the mic, please feel free to raise your hand. But I'm intrigued by this because, for me, this is a really good balance between the kind of passion I feel about how education's changing, but an understanding of how educational institutions will change. And also, my next question to, to Leonard will be, there will be people who will opt out of that institutional change process and move to things like homeschooling? Uh, and are, are there other ways in which you see people would opt out?
0: We're waiting for Lennon to come in through the telephone.
1: Hello, oh, Steve. Oh my gosh, you're gonna make everybody very happy.
0: Okay, <laughs> <is this power? laughs>
1: There's cheering, I can tell.
0: Oh boy, okay. Well sorry about
2: that. I, you know, technology and all. So now we've yeah, got some. So back. now
1: you should see a little icon that allows you to uh, finish out that process. Was there a, a okay.
2: okay. It tells me to dial in and then it it gives me connected, tells them do yeah, I do just okay, hit okay there?
1: And then your machine will know what you're done. Okay, so You've described something for me which has been really healthy, which is an understanding of the kind of the radical transformation of learning and information, how systems adapt and adopt, and what kinds of changes we can expect to see, and especially kind of this model of blended schools. How many people do you think will opt out of that institutional change? And, And will enough say that they're not willing to wait for that change, that it may actually put the system in jeopardy?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting. Let's, let's look at a, at a radical change that's already taken place, and that was the change from the liberal arts college to the university. The liberal arts college gave up very, very reluctantly. In mean, 1820, Yale was issuing a report saying a college could never have anything to do with occupations and that would lower its whole thing and the like. And there was just enormous pressure on the college from the 1820s until the Civil War to start having you know, a technology course, an engineering class. Even science wasn't, there was no science at Harvard. There was a few science courses but there was no place to study science. And then, you know, pretty quickly after the Civil War, it was the land-grant colleges, which were never really set up to to become research universities. They were set up, you know, to help a few farmers learn how to grow corn or whatever, but they just radically changed uh, the schools. But people could still go to a liberal arts college. Now, there was still the Swabmores and uh, other Leslians and the like. So I, I don't think we'll ever see the day when something like schools as we know them will will uh I, I I don't think they will disappear entirely. I just think that going they're going to be part of a much uh, richer array of possibilities for people.
1: So were you did you listen in on the John Taylor Gatto lecture or interview? I sure did. did. So
2: those amazing he interview.
1: feels very much like you have to leave the system. And uh, he tells a similar story to Seth Godin and to Anya about how schools were created, the factory school models were created. Is that, in your research, is that an exaggeration or is it is it pretty close to the truth?
0: Well, uh, you know, I, I heard uh, John uh, Telegato and he has you a know, pretty quick and
2: easy story about that. Uh, but, uh, let me just tell a little bit more complicated story. There, was, there were no schools in anything like the way we're familiar with them at all until the 19th century. And the uh, primary work on this has been done by Andy Green, who's at the London Institute of Education. And he tried to figure, okay, why, you know, we always talk about Horace Mann and Prussia. John Taylor Gatta talked about that. Why Prussia? Why did schools start there? Why did they start in Austria? And the answer is that Germany was not yet a nation state. Prussia was beginning to gather into itself more and more of the territory of Germany, but it had many, many different people, many different uh, uh, ethnic groups, many different religious groups, and different language groups and the like, and they had no means for bringing them together with any kind of unity. Also, the the, uh, agricultural economy was really collapsing. People were being thrown off the land in in droves and there was a large amount of crime and just huge amount of social disruption. And so the reformers felt that if they could get all these kids into a school where they have the same experiences, they speak the same language, they have the same lessons and the like, they could create a country. Well, the same thing happened in the United States really in the 1830s with Horace Mann. We had uh, these district schools. Almost nobody went. There were none of the cities. Uh, They were a total wreck. And they had been created in the 1640s and 50s largely because a lot of illiterate people were there who could not teach their children to read. And this was an affront to the Protestant religion. So by the 1840s, most people in New England who were Protestants could read. You had this huge influx flux of Catholics starting around 1810 or 1820. And we also had uh, Massachusetts land filled up completely so that there was no more land for the sons or sort of the second sons of the farm families. And you had the same situation you had in Prussia. You had people ranging all over the land. There was a lot of crime. There was a lot of, kind of almost like a mob scene that was wrecking the country. And so they got the idea well we'll do what we'll do is we'll take everybody and we'll put them into school, and we'll give them a common experience, and we'll kind of get them kind of at least enough literate and numerate so that they can go get a job in a factory and that's uh that's that's you know why we have these schools then the uh after the Civil War, there was you know the huge amount of factory development, and so now we didn't want to have child labor. We wanted to keep the uh, the teens in school as well. So we wanted to keep them in school at least until they were 16. So the high schools were kind of added on top of the, the common schools. And uh, that was a big battle too. I mean there was a huge battle against the high school. But the high school finally won because it served a lot of social purposes. Primarily keeping this rabble of kids in a place where they could have a common lesson
1: and be disciplined. So what's valuable to me about that description you've given is it seems to honor the cultural process that we go through that is not really as black and white as stories sometimes gets told. And it feels like, in many ways, we're going through a similar process of cultural negotiation, of trying to, to tell new stories and figuring out what those stories are, where, and there was a great, great quote in one of your papers said, um, um, ideas that are initially rejected out of hand as way out may eventually be accepted as right on time. They may gain attention in popular magazines and journals of opinion Mm -hmm. and be shaped by entrepreneurs into small but well-publicized experimental models, finally to be taken in hand by leaders who who the public regards as responsible. So we can definitely see that we're going through a process of uh, that same kind of process with regard to education. And it feels like a better telling of the story.
2: I, I think so. Go ahead. No, okay. yeah, I, I think that's what we're we're seeing now. I think we're recognizing that the K-12 system has, in some sense, broken down. I, I want to add something to the story, if I can, Steve. So I think we can understand part of where it's breaking down. The the K-12 system, when it was envisioned in the uh, 1880s and 1890s was never thought of as a universal secondary education system. The secondary school was thought of as a very special school for special kids, the ones who would get the middle management jobs, the ones who would uh, be thinking about uh, the the bookkeepers and, and the like. And so it might have been envisioned at first for 20% of the, of the population. And in fact, you know, well into the 20th century, only 20 or 30% of kids graduated from high school. And the result is that the high school was a differentiator. It was a sorting machine. It said, these kids are better. They've learned more. They've stayed in school longer, and we can then accept them as uh, appropriate for a higher level of employment. They were differentiated, but then, then when people thought, well, if if they're getting that, I want it for my child as well. So we had, you know, first of all, in the, in the eighteen, in the nineteen tens and twenties, we got the vocational comprehensive high school. So more people started going to high school before working and graduating before working in the industry, and well, as we've moved through the twentieth century, more and more and more people have gone to and graduated from high school, and the result is a high school diploma no longer differentiates you. You don't get anything special from having it. And not only that, but even worse, because we've pushed everybody we could through high school, the high school diploma is no longer a proxy for anything that you've learned.
1: Is there a parallel story there as so well we have a that system. The, the actual music uh, uh, education itself has decreased uh, or or have have the, go ahead.
2: It has to. It has to decrease. When you had only 20% of the students there, they were the ones who were selected because they had. Maybe they came from middle class families, although that wasn't always the case. Maybe it was because there were more books in the home, parents felt more more you know, in favor of education, the kids picked up things quicker, so that in fact a high school diploma not only distinguished you by virtue of having a diploma, but also of having learned certain things that other kids hadn't learned. Once you start having every single person that can possibly get through the high school, through the high school, it means that you've had to readjust the curriculum downward to the level where the lowest person can get a diploma. So there has been a, a huge decrease in what the high school diploma means, and it's not because anyone's dumbing anything down in, in any, in any uh, negative sense. Teachers will always respond to the students in their class by negotiating a peaceful classroom. You can't do otherwise. I mean, there was this thing I read in the paper the other day about algebra for all. And uh, someone had discovered that algebra was the key to getting past uh, the early years of high school and graduating and maybe even going to college getting a good job. So somebody got the idea, well, we'll give everybody algebra. Well, the problem was some kids, as this newspaper article said, were eight years behind in math. Well, algebra is a ninth grade subject. If you're eight years behind, it means you can't add and subtract. And they were in algebra classes, and so the result was that they learned no algebra, of course. In fact, the teacher wasn't even using an algebra book with them. But the kids who had
0: previously been in the algebra classes, and now were in the algebra classes with them, they didn't learn any algebra either. So the algebra for all uh process ended up in nobody learning any algebra.
2: And this is not because teachers are dumbing things down. If you have a class of kids, most of whom are not ready for algebra because their arithmetic skills aren't up to it, nobody's gonna learn any algebra and the teacher's not gonna teach any algebra because
0: teacher's saying she knows what she can accomplish in a given day.
1: So um fascinating kind of story here. And uh, uh, do the testing companies play into this at all? One of the the criticisms I hear a lot is that the testing companies have actually reduced standards of their tests in order to be adopted more highly by states where the scores weren't as high as they should be. Does that end up being
0: truthful? Yes, I think it is truthful and also it's an auction. States are going to look for a
2: test which they can do acceptably in if their schools are going to be, you know, labeled as failing schools and funding is going to be withdrawn and teachers are going to be fired and the like. Can you imagine what a disruption it is to the system? So suppose you had a state superintendent of instruction or a bunch of superintendents in the district, in the schools, in,
0: in, in the state, in various districts. And they said, we want the highest standards. Well, you know, it's going to create chaos. You can't close half the schools. You know, and so the result is that any time you try to uh, make these assessments through standardized
2: tests and the states can have a kind of choice of which test they're going to take they're going to try to find a test that's going to reduce the damage. So, How could it be otherwise?
1: Deanne says in the chat, is it only the education system that is broken? Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. Are we going through a little bit of a crisis in meaning? Is, is part of what's happening with the internet and it's showing us the potential but being locked into existing organizational structures that we are having a little bit of a psychological crisis.
0: Well, you know, I uh, let me let me just try to simplify that one bit. Uh
2: for most of us, and I would say even for me as a professional philosopher Steve, uh the question of the meaning of life is at the first instance not a very um deep and uh, soul-searching question. I mean, you know, you can go there, but you know, the first deal is I got a car, I got a house, I got a wife, I
0: got a kid. You know, if you have all of that, your life is pretty decent. Well, you know, with the rapidly changing occupational
2: structure, the outsourcing of jobs, the hollowing out of corporations and the like, many people who are very well educated, who thought they had it made, they not only don't have a job, but they look around at the new kinds of employment that's uh, emerging. A lot of it uh, uh you, you know uh internet based and creative and joining teams like they don't even know what the heck to do, so I would say just on this very very simple level there's a very large crisis of of a psychological kind in a society because many people are you know quite lost they they you know they're they, they've been eliminated maybe their whole way of working has been eliminated, and the internet has a huge uh place in that. You have firms. I mean, just I give one example. I was looking at a uh, a school in Malaysia that has thousands of students and two teachers, and all the other teachers are part timers, and they're, uh, I'm sure, just sort of piecing
0: together a livelihood. Well, that has to be just a very troubling
1: situation. So at one point, I also pulled this quote out. You said, what is needed at this point is not reform to save the public schools as we know them, but a new public education defined by new ideas and templates for organizational practice addressed to the wider public and compatible with their emerging understandings and values. I would call what we need a new philosophy of education. So are we getting closer? Uh, uh, Where are you seeing this uh, take place and, and um, not, not the practical move say towards blended school, larger philosophical understanding yeah. together?
0: Okay. Well, first I, I think that there, there are new concepts
2: of rational action that are uh, related to the Internet. One of the phrases that you see a lot in Clay Shirky's book and others is ready, fire, aim that the cost of making mistakes is much lower. People get things together, they put them out, corrections get made, they put out another data version, and like things don't, don't solidify. Uh, I, I have the feeling that people are going to be much more culturally open to learning processes which are like that, which are not as solid. When you think about a, a, a high school curriculum, It is one of the most solid things you can imagine. Four years of math, four years of science, four years of social studies, four years of uh, language and literature. And they're the same courses, like 16 big bricks. And I don't think anybody thinks that that makes that much sense anymore. Why not try all kinds of other things? And I think blended schools will first start by having all kinds of things. Some of them will be unfamiliar. And then once the, the the schools are blended, then, then, then you will have large, efficient computer laboratories in every school, and so once you have that, you'll have the infrastructure for a tremendous amount of uh, networked uh, learning. So I think that people will try new things, and where I see the big evolution coming is not at the at the cusp of the blended school. I think. Every high school and country is going to be blended in a short period of time. I just don't see if there's any way around it. David Wiley argues that the, the cost advantages of having online uh, schooling, even though they're not huge, they're significant enough that schools will not be able to pass them up. If you're fielding a class of uh, physics for seven students, you're just not going to be able to pass off being able to send those seven students to a to an online physics class. And uh, if, you, if you need a, a foreign language that uh, several students need but that you can't field it in your school, well, you'll have online opportunities. Once we have things like Idaho, where every school has this huge reservoir of online courses that they can take. Uh, and and even a lot of the homeschooler, cyber schooler people will be back in school because the kids will be able to get the same kind of education that they were getting because they'll be kind of free from all of the rigmarole of the uh, very tightly structured high school. They can come and go when they want to. They can take a lot of different classes that suit their needs and the like. So then, you know, we're thinking, what is the new philosophy here? It's a philosophy of, of making constellations of experiences that are meaningful to a particular individual and that can be generated by the staff and by the students and the staff can help the students through those experiences and to kind of negotiate a more complex pattern of learning that will still count for college if that's what, you know, is, is desired on the part of that student. That can serve as a kind of apprenticeship for a uh, occupation after high school. I, mean, I, I don't know if you saw this uh, webinar uh, with Rush. Uh, uh, what was his name? Rush uh, Hurley. Rush, Rush and Hurley and Jeff Schmidt. They have a video apprentice program, all instrumented through the internet, as half of the high school program in their high school, 530 hours and 10 Carnegie units, and they just were able to piece this together from a large number of uh, web offerings. And uh, and face-to-face offerings, the kids essentially work in a video production firm half of the time. And when they leave, they have both a occupational certificate and a high school diploma that qualifies them for college admission. So, I, what I see is a kind of open, a kind of open philosophy developing, in which many, many particles are going to be able to be combined together to make. Uh, what would count as a good secondary education, and what would provide links to all of the new institutions that we have in society like web-based
1: occupations. I've been watching the chat and we have a desire for people to ask questions. So let's shift to the Uh, Q&A. To ask Leonard a question, uh, either put it in the chat now or look for the hand with the green up arrow in the participant window. You can raise your hand and I'll give you the microphone. So leonard is some is is an individual or are some individuals emerging to tell that story that you feel kind of are those trusted leaders
2: uh, I don't think we're there yet, and that's that was the uh, point that I made in the in the title here. I was talking to Kurt Bonk about this on Friday night last Friday night, and Kurt and I agreed that we are not at that place yet that the uh the pieces are in place the technologies are in place the uh, experiments are getting done the schools are becoming blended as they become blended they'd be more complex as they're more complex with with all of the computer labs and the like all kinds of new possibilities will be there but i don't think anyone has yet put out a philosophical model that holds all this together and that would be palatable digestible by uh, by our elites and by uh the, the, the the larger part of the population. So I don't think we're there yet, but I think we're really
1: right. For so that. according to your theory, we should be looking for somebody who becomes, some individual or group, who become really thoughtful, articulate supporters of understanding the value of blended learning?
2: I would say it's not just blended learning, but going one step beyond that to see how once we have blended learning, we can have a much more open learning environment because we have the kids in or out of school and moving through that boundary on, at, you know, on a voluntary basis. We have the use computer labs here. Think of it more like a, a university campus than a high school campus. Kids can come and go, they can take classes, whatever, but the staff is web savvy is able to create a courseware of their own, is able to create programs to respond to local needs and the needs of kids. And the kids can generate programs. The teachers can kind of pick it up and figure out how to give it credit so that it's, it's opening up the blended school. To, and by the way, I want to say one thing that, that, that's worth mentioning here, Steve. We, this kind of schools that we have that are closed, that are blocked, structures like this, this is a new invention. This, thing, this is a, an invention of the uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, the New England academies were more like what I'm talking about. Students and staff figured out some new courses to invent. Uh, they would invent them and drop them if there was no longer a need for them. There was no sense that you took this, this, and this. Uh, that that didn't happen until the high schools had to get their act together with respect to college admission. That's a, a, a something that happened in the 1890s where the high school solidified into something that we now see as, you know, that, you know, biology, chemistry, physics and algebra, geometry, pre-calculus. Uh, it doesn't have to be like that. So I think that once we get the blended school, we still have that block structure. I mean, that's the trouble with state standards. and That's what is holding Idaho and, and Utah back in my view. But once we have the infrastructure, then we, we will start finding people who can frame up broad new concepts of what you can do with that new structure and connecting them to other institutions of society so that they can make sense of a kind of proposal to open up the uh, educational world in that way. But it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take new legislation because we have all of this very constraining legislation that you know, with all state standards and the like. That has to go. State standards and standardized testing are the are the um the linchpins that hold the factory school in place. You cannot do anything so long as they are in place. So
1: Maria Drushkova, another regular listener who is not shy to take the microphone, has asked to take the microphone. Maria?
0: Hi. Hello? Does it work? Hi. Hi. Yes, doing hey.
2: great. Um Hi. Nice to talk to you. I'm uh, glad we're here today and talking, so my question is, we say
1: the word school so much. It's a great institution, it just should be one of many, and yet even in conversations like that about revolutions and changes, uh, we orient ourselves toward or
2: away from school. Can we talk about like a dozen more of uh, different places and institutions and
0: groups and so on that can work? That's a, that's a wonderful question. And the answer is sure. We should be talking about many other institutions
2: that are centers of learning. Nonetheless, I think thinking about the school is a way of creating a kind of continuity. You have unschoolers. I would be one myself, except my kid never wanted to be unschooled. He wanted to go to some kind of a school. You have the homeschoolers. Most of them are pretty well locked into a, cur- a curriculum. So I think, and, and parents, especially of children, you know, from 5 to 12 or so, they are desperate to have a safe, nice place for their kids. So. I don't think we're going to eliminate school altogether. My thought is that we retain the notion of school, but we loosen it very, very much. In, in Germany, kids go to school through nine grades, and then they have the option of going into apprentice programs. I think this is fantastic. When they go to their apprentice programs, they go. For example, a nurse goes to a hospital. A I met a girl recently who was a professional book binder. She can design books. She can design the cover. She can make paper. She can design fonts. She's 19 years old. She went from ninth grade to a bookmaking firm, a publishing firm that, pre- that actually manufactured books. And at 19, she has the full uh, uh, Possession of the craft of bookmaking, so she was still in a kind of school-like program. She went to classes half the day, and she worked half the day, and she actually got got a wage. So I I don't think it's going to serve our revolutionary purposes well to say, well, this is not school. It's it's like that you know, like Marx's phrase about the withering away of the state. I don't think we're going to see the withering away of the school. I just think we're going to see the, the context of learning much broadened, and I think there still will be some kind of central core that will persist. And if we're going to call it, and you know, like in, in the case of these apprentices, they were still going to a kind of school program, even though it was at the firm where they were working. Uh, it was a continuity of their of their learning and it was something that enabled them to get a high school diploma and even go to university if they wished at a later point. So I'm kind of for very much weakening the concept of schools that it includes learning in all kinds of uh, environments that are somehow connected loosely to a a core of schooling. But I'm not for the withering, the total withering away of the school. I think that, that, I don't think you can sell that to anybody. I
1: think it's just two strange notions. So Ken has asked, and I think maybe it came up before and, and went by too fast in the chat, he's asked about uh, discipline and standards and his concern I think that, uh, that the loss of
0: them could lead to problems. Well, you know, I don't think we have them right now. I mean it's uh,
2: it's like we had algebra for all, we had high standards, we had kids who were eight years behind in ninth grade.
0: I mean who's kidding who? You know we, we decided to put in these these statewide tests and we had huge numbers of failing schools. We have kids who
2: are graduating from high school functionally illiterate. So I think you know the question isn't you know some kind of a fantasy about standards. The question is really how can we get as many kids as we possibly can uh, into a situation where they are learning a lot, uh, making progress in their lives. I mean, kids know about this this, uh, business about the high school, not differentiating. They know that a high school diploma is not going to get them anything. They know that it doesn't that 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 if they don't go to college and now college because we're, we're essentially moving the situation to college. In 1900, one percent went to college. Now we're boasting at 50 percent, 60 percent in institutions of higher education. Uh, well, you know, there's going to come a point, and it probably has come already, where a college diploma is not going to get you much. So. People have very little motivation to persevere and to learn much. And the result is, as, as we said earlier, that standards drop away. People would learn a heck of a lot more. I mean, like this girl I met who was in this bookbinding program. I said, why did you go to uh, apprentice rather than continuing in high school? She said, so I didn't have to study.
0: But she didn't really mean that. She meant so she didn't have to take trigonometry. So she didn't have to memorize the four parts of the frog. So instead, she learned how to make paper. She said, paper is very sexy.
2: She was in love with what she was doing. And when I met her, she was in Oxford, England. I was at a conference there, and I met her because she was staying at the hotel I was. She was interviewing for a high-level professional job in a book manufacturing industry in Oxford. She got the job, too, 19 years old.
1: So that's my (laughs) answer to the stamp. It's hard to believe. Let's be real. Didn't mean to interrupt you. Hard to believe we've reached the top of the hour. Thanks to you for coming tonight. Great. Um, I'm, I'm anxious for pe- other people to be able to read the material that you sent to me. Is that available somewhere, or are you comfortable putting links up for that somewhere?
0: Uh, I would be very, very pleased for
2: you to put any of it up that you wanted to, Steve. It's all in a preprint form. Much of it is available uh, only through these you know, lousy, Copyrighted uh, uh, journal things I mean the way I understand the rule is that you can always send a preprint to anybody, so most of the most of what I sent you, I think was in preprint form, and if not, I can send it there. Uh, I don't have a good website where I can put it all up uh what I could do, and maybe you and I can figure out how to do this, I could wrap a lot of that stuff together in a copyright free manner.
1: How we could figure out how anyone could get. <laughs> well, uh, I'm glad to help to, you. Myself. I'm certainly glad to help you in any way. I can also go ahead and just put it into the uh, event, the the post for the event at futureofeducation.com if you're comfortable, and make make it available there. You're perfectly comfortable with that. I'm going to do that perfectly comfortable with that. Okay, I'm clapping for you. I'm really delighted that you uh, reached out and asked to, to, to participate in this way, and I feel like we've had a really good conversation tonight, and I hope that it continues. Um, I'm hoping that you'll also kind of take us to the next level of, you know, where do we take futureofeducation.com to, to continue to be a, an important part of this discussion or a helpful part of this discussion. Uh, I do want to make sure that people know that... Well, Steve, I don't think you could... Go do
2: I want to say I, I don't see that you could be doing anything better than what you're doing. You're doing absolutely everything right as far as I can see. Every time somebody writes a new book, they're there. There's Alan Collins, bang, he's there telling us that 95% of the kids at school. Well, we understand why. It's great. It's great to have him on. Clay Shirky tells us about all the things we can now do we can you know write. we can we can share, we can exchange, we can cooperate, we can collaborate we can I mean, just think of what a history class could be now where everybody could document through oral history and with the uh, videos and the like uh, uh, of their of their grandparents and their great grandparents the the totality of their community and they can learn with a good teacher guide how to make a fantastic product. The trouble is they wouldn't be able to answer any question on the state standards right? So so somebody, I hope it's me, I mean I hope it's a bunch of people, are going to be able to find the words. Look, we all build on one another. I, I, I build on, on Kurt, Kurt was saying, Kurt Bonk was saying on Friday, look, this is going to happen soon, but it's not going to happen here. People in other countries are further ahead or maybe like Trotsky's law of uneven development, they're further behind. They don't have as much of this structure to move aside and they can move to something radically different more quickly and then they will stimulate our thinking about how we can you know, emulate them in a way that's suitable to our own uh, cultural context. So you, know, keep, you keep your ears to the ground as you do, you find out everything that's going on that's new, you bring those people on and it'll just happen by itself. It's not going to happen by uh, somebody trying very hard. It's like all these processes, they're very complex. The stress is at every level in the system. And I'm telling you, if I'm thinking about this right now, in my advanced age, there must be 50 or 100 people with similar backgrounds to mine who are also thinking about it. So, you know, the book that's going to do it, or the the leader who's going to do it, is just going to show up.
1: Well, this is really fun because... It and feels like evening. we're all going to be part of this together in telling new stories and in, in figuring this we out. Are. And maybe part of what I've heard from you in that in, in that last little bit is an encouragement to actually look for some uh, guests who are coming from outside of the U.S.
0: A little bit better job with that. Yeah, in
2: fact, you know, people like Curtis Bond could really help because he knows everybody outside the U.S. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't. I know mean, I mean, people in the UK and the US, but Curtis has been everywhere, so he could probably give you some nice hints about places that are further along in this. Than we Okay,
1: are. Leonard, thank you so much. We are—we uh, uh, I try and do a good job of ending on time. Steve, it it's has been, been wonderful, wonderful. Um, so that people know they—they they don't have.
2: And I'll tell you something. It's almost as much fun as. Yeah, it's almost as much fun as <laughs> <a> participating.
1: <laughs> well. Hey, you've done a great <laughs> job. Thanks, everybody, for coming tonight. Leonard, I'm clapping for you again. Please um, look at our future schedule. If there's something of interest, we hope you'll join us on Thursday. The team from Think Global School uh, should be really, really fun to talk to them about their this new model that they're pursuing. Have a great night, everybody. Leonard, thanks again. See, fun thing:
2: Some people are asking how they can contact me. Could you put my I will, email I up? will
1: put it in the chat. I will also put it with the... Uh, papers that I'll attach to the, um, to, the, to the Future of Education. Oh, you know, that's actually on my blog, so it'll click through. I'll make sure that if you go to Future of Education and click through to your event that the, that material is available, and your email.
2: Great. I'd love to, he- yeah, love to hear from everybody and the stories of what's going on in their schools or outside of their schools, and it'll all, it'll all be great for
1: the mill. Thanks, Leonard. Have a great night. Thanks, everybody, for coming. You too, Steve. And you know the drill. Uh, in order for the recording to process, uh, we do have to uh, leave the room. So we will uh, encourage you to stick around as long as you need to to make final comments. But then when you're done, go ahead and close the program out or go up to File and Exit. And I'll put Leonard's information. If you go to futureeducation.com and click through, in the next 15 minutes, his email and his papers will be up so that you can um, you can read them. Thanks, everybody,
0: for coming. Have a great night.